I'm now going to pass over to Will Lester. He's another stalwart member of our hemostasis and thrombosis task force, been involved in many of the guidelines. Um, he, he's a consultant at Birmingham University Hospital, and he's going to talk now on guidelines on the assessment of the bleeding risk prior to surgery or invasive procedures. And just a reminder, questions please in the chat, and we'll come back to questions on both these talks after this one. Thank you very much. Thank you, BSH, for the opportunity to present these guidelines. We're actually trying something a little different this time because these guidelines haven't actually been finished yet. And the idea is that maybe a bit of feedback can be provided just to, to help with that completion because there are some controversial elements, perhaps less so to haematologists. So just to start, a reminder that several years ago, uh, NICE produced some guidelines for preoperative testing and recommended that routine coagulation screening was not performed before any type of surgery, no matter how risky. Um, although there was the caveat to consider it in people with chronic liver disease, um, there was some mention of anticoagulants and checking clotting status prior to surgeries in point of care testing. That's really to do with patients on vitamin K antagonists. However, the practice has not been widely accepted prior to other invasive procedures. We talk about some major surgery, but, what, but, but, but most of the procedures that are done are done um, for m mostly biopsies, um, done by all sorts of practitioners. Um, so why is that? Why, why only has this been taken up and not in all standard surgeries? Some people are still doing coagulation testing, hopefully not many. Why? So I guess one of the issues remains ignorance of how rubbish coagulation tests are. I can't think of a better word than rubbish. Um, it's habit. And a common statement is um, from an operator usually doing a blind procedure, um, we can't visualize or apply local hemostatic measures in the way that a surgeon can. However, it doesn't make coagulation tests any better. So performing them doesn't really make a great deal of sense. I mean, we know that most requests for PTs and APTTs are a complete waste of time, um, at least 90% in this study. And we know that there are various studies looking at the value of routine coagulation testing prior to non-surgical procedures. Um, this is just one example um, of a meta-analysis. This was actually mentioned in the previous BSH guidelines that these are these are replacing. And uh, this was one trial in 24 observational studies. So it's low quality, but they did show that the INR did not predict bleeding during invasive procedures. And I don't think that's entirely surprising based on the reasons for the INR being prolonged in most of the cases. And I think one of the big, big issues is that most patients with milder bleeding disorders, because that's what we're trying to pick up here, we don't, we're not going to identify um, severe haemophilia or type 2 Willebrand disease with preoperative screening. Um, so patients with mild bleeding disorders will generally have a normal PT and APTT and fibrinogen, and that would include most mild types of Willebrand disease, platelet disorders, mild factor deficiencies, and what I would consider probably the most common um, problem we see in bleeding disorders clinic is an unclassified bleeding disorder. 
One example is that Nequas distributed a sample from a patient with a factor IX level of 21. You would expect that all laboratories should get an abnormal APTT, but actually half the laboratories had an APTT ratio within the normal range, in fact, including ours. So I don't think people quite realise how sensitive their own APTT reagents are, even to factor deficiencies. What we tend to find with APTTs is irrelevant factor deficiencies more than relevant. So just getting to the nub of, of bleeding risk assessment, we've talked about how realistic clotting screens are not that useful. The European Society of Anesthesiology does recommend pre-procedure bleeding history. Um, and in a survey of more than 700 members, it was identified that less than half of them utilised any form of standard history to assess bleeding risk. And that the problem really is that bleeding assessment tools, and, and in haematology, I suppose the ISTH BAS score has been the most universally used for, for, for disorders of primary haemostasis mainly. Um, the, the problem is that they've not been validated for use in the preoperative setting, and certainly not in the pre-procedure setting. And so the performance remains questionable, and most of the studies uh, have, a, have a circular argument where they're looking at whether the ISTH bat identifies a definite laboratory disorder, whereas really what we're interested in is patients who are going to bleed when they have a procedure. So is there a bleeding questionnaire which we can promote in the guidance? Well, HemeStop looks to be the number one candidate. It's based on five questions with two more for women. Um, and relatively straightforward, if you consulted your doctor for prolonged bleeding, do you experience bruises or hematomas larger than two centimetres without trauma or severe bruising with minor trauma? After dental extraction, have you had prolonged bleeding? Have you experienced bleeding during or after surgery? And is there anyone in your family who suffers from a coagulation disorder? And it was a small validation study, but a score of less than two, if you give one to each. Um, and this was what they considered a realistic prevalence scenario with a bleeding disorder frequency of 1% at a high negative predictive value of greater than 99%. So what are our current suggested recommendations? Well, firstly, prior to invasive procedures associated with the risk of bleeding, perform a structured bleeding history, including personal family history of spontaneous procedure-related bleeding. And we will put HemeStop as an example. If the bleeding history is negative, then routine coagulation testing is not indicated. And I think this is really, really important because we want to free uh, uh, the clinicians doing the biopsies from the necessity um, of doing these or requesting these tests, which often leads to quite a lot of hassle, uh, unnecessary investigation. Um, and I think it needs to be out there. Finally, if the bleeding history is positive and there's no obvious comorbidity um, that's the clear issue, um, then patients should be referred for further assessment, including test hemostasis. And we've been a bit reluctant to say do a routine correct test for the reasons outlined. Um, now, the ISTH, um, I think this is published in JTH, have recommendations for how to investigate patients for a, for a potential bleeding disorder. And the, and the problem is a routine coagulation screen is really only a, a small component of that. 
Now, there is now, uh, thankfully, and, and congratulations to Mike Desborough and Beverly Hunt, um, a CERS guidance. It's, it's pre-published um, and um, actually very much sort of mirrors the direction of travel that we were going in. Um, and um, this is Interventional Radiology. It's an international society. Unfortunately, it's in a journal that's not free access, which is a shame. So just to outline, patients should be initially assessed using a structured bleeding history or questionnaire. Indiscriminate coagulation screening is not recommended. And if the structured history is negative and the patient's not receiving antithrombotic treatment, no coagulation testing is indicated, so it's the same. Structured bleeding history is posit positive. We recommend performing a coagulation screen. I mean, uh, you know, that's reasonable, but as long as they don't stop at that stage and, and discussion with a hematologist and recommend a coagulation screen for patients on anticoagulation. I mean, it's really only relevant, to be honest, to vitamin K antagonist in the whole, because if you know a patient's on, a, on, a, on an anticoagulant, you can manage that appropriately. Um, one thing I was surprised about, it was received in June 2019 and accepted in December 2019. I'm not sure what happened here. Hopefully someone can let us know. looks a bit, bit of a concern. Um, so another controversy, antiplatelet drugs. So this is perhaps a suggested um, a suggestion um, is stopping seven days prior to procedure with associated with bleeding risk if they're on a PTY12 inhibitor. I'm going to qualify this. If you can't delay, then stop. Try and stop for at least 24 hours, and then a platelet transfusion can be considered. Now this is the ESC guidance on stopping PTY12 inhibitors. Um, Ticagrelor three days, uh, clopidogrel five days, buzzagrel seven days. The problem is that most of this data comes from cardiac surgery where there's meticulous attention to hemostasis and the patients are operated on usually when they're generously anticoagulated anyway. Um, and can that apply to a blind procedure where you can't see the site and apply any topical or local hemostatic measures? Um, because um, we know these drugs do have an effect beyond these timings. I think with Prasugrel and Ticagrelor, it's relatively easy because really they need expert advice with, as Julie had a recent stent in. However, clopidogrel monotherapy is the most common scenario, and this is given after any ischemic stroke that's not AF-related. And there's very little literature about clopidogrel monotherapy. It's all about what to do with dual antiplatelet therapy um, rather than patients on monotherapy. Um, a little bit of background data. This was just looking at light transmission uh, aggregation, showing that after clopidogrel it doesn't return to normal for 10 days, that you need a 90% uh, platelet spike to correct it in vitro, and that from a clinical, more clinical perspective, a bleeding time requires eight days to correct. The problem is it's all surrogate measures, really. But what you want is a timing which captures most patients um, in terms of bleeding risk, which is why perhaps seven days is, is more realistic for a blind procedure, um, like a liver biopsy, for example, um, compared to other types of surgery, because you want the maximum patients to not experience bleeding, but you obviously have the compromise of thrombosis risk. And one of the issues that I wanted to just mention was patient consent, because actually in a lot of procedures, the patient themselves is asked to stop uh, drugs, anticoagulants, antiplatelets, but not necessarily given any information about the fact that there is 
an albeit small risk of breakthrough thrombosis that often can't be mitigated by any, any measures. And we do feel that it's important that, 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 cons that consent is integrated into the process of assessment of whether patients are on drugs or not. I mean, clearly it's, it's not so easy in an acute situation, but for the elective situation, and I think it's, it's a big ask, but I think it's an important ask. Quick case is a 54-year-old on ITU with a severe chest impairment, so he's got sepsis basically, um, following complex surgery. They need a tracheostomy. We've got a platelet count of 80, an INR of 1.8. Um, should be a PT ratio, really, because I'm not on warfarin. A PT ratio of 1.45, engine of 2.4. So how do we manage hemostasis? We're just looking at the numbers, aren't we? I mean, coagulopathy is very common in critical care, affecting up to 30% of patients. FFP, this is historical data, but 50% of it is administered in ICU in the non-bleeding setting, either to treat the numbers or often for procedures. I suppose questions, relevant questions as does FFP transfusion improve hemostasis and is the INO in any way predictive of bleeding um, in this context rather than the elective context we talked about before? I mean, part of the issue obviously is the nature of the routine coagulation screen, 7, 10, um, to, to fibrin, it really is completely in vitro. Um, whereas the true coagulation screen is a balance between various clotting factors, some are low, some are high. Um, for example, on villibrands, um, and factor eight often go up in this context, including in liver disease, um, which may compensate to some extent for the reduced platelets. Um, most natural anticoagulants will drop even more so than, than, than coagulant proteins. So we've got a complex mix and a complex balance is in no way reflected with a basic coagulation test. There are little nuggets of, of, of trials, often they under-recruited because they were difficult to recruit to, that we can use to make guidance. This was 76 patients um, requiring procedures with an INR 1.53, randomized to FFP versus nothing. No appreciable difference. There was one major bleed in the no FFP group, but really no appreciable difference um, between the two groups. And this is this is non-liver patients. This is not specific for liver patients. And what's interesting, if you look at their data, the median INR for this group was 1.8, and they had reductions in factors 2, 5, and 7, none of them to a level that's hemostatically important but also equivalent reductions in antithrombin protein C and protein S. Thrombin generation was generally normal in most cases, um, whatever you think that thrombin generation tells us, because that often depends on the reagents added to it. And the viscoelastic testing was virtually always normal. Liver disease has, has a similar coagulopathy to, to that of sepsis. Um, I mean, it's not identical, but there are, there's this rebalancing issue falling natural anticoagulants, falling procoagulant factors. Actually, some natural, some procoagulant factors going up, like factor eight and von Willebrand's, and fibrinolysis being a sort of slightly unpredictable thing. So if we say, oh, a patient with liver disease is not INR 1.9, what does that mean? What does that mean in, the, in this context when we're literally looking at three coagulation factors? Um, and I think we're getting a little bit more canny now with how we interpret this. There's another little nugget study Patients with INRs over 1.8 and platelets and or platelets less than 50 with liver disease requiring invasive procedures. And they had the standard of care group, which is that everybody got transfusion, FFP and platelets, versus a group that had a TEG. And only when the TEG was abnormal did they receive either FFP or platelets. So only two 
therapeutic platelets and 3 d FFP in platelets. And there was just one bleed in the standard of care group. I don't think this tells us that the TEG is a great tool to predict bleeding, but it tells us that normal coagulation is an awful way of predicting bleeding. And if we give FFP, we know that if we give the standard, the average dose of FFP given an ITU is actually less than, is, a, is two units or less, actually. It's completely homeopathic. Um, if you give three to four units, which are a bit more decent, you'll get a 10% increment in most factors, not hemostatically important. You really need to get anything of hemostatic importance. You need to give at least 30 mils per kg, which is enough to put any patient into heart failure, especially if they're unwell. And this was a nice study um, published quite a while ago, just showing that basically the use of FFP failed to correct the iron ore prior to procedures in virtually all patients. FFP itself does not have a normal INR, of course. Um, and it's some more recent data. This is in liver patients looking at um, thrombin generation before and after transfusion of FFP. A few people got a minimal, a minimal improvement, but some people actually got worse. Um, so essentially, FFP, I think, universally appears to be pretty useless. So this perhaps is controversial, and we haven't put all the caveats in, obviously, that we will put in, but um, I think the statement FFP should not be used to correct the PT slash INR prior to invasive procedures in non-bleeding patients holds true. And I'd be interested to know whether people think there are scenarios outside of the rare situation of congenital factor five deficiency. But I think we need to get a little bold at this stage and stop um, these bizarre practices not based on actual real-life evidence. So in summary, abnormal coagulation tests are very poor predictive bleeding and negligible value, so we're going to recommend against it in most contexts. Um, we know procedures can be delayed or cancelled and plasma products given inappropriately when trying to reduce this risk. Patients with true bleeding problems frequently have normal coagulation screens. I think that's an important message. And there is still some uncertainty about the management of antiplatelet uh, agents before non-cardiac procedures, and we do need to come up with some realistic timings. I think it's a bit easier for the anticoagulants.